Uh, it is a pleasure uh, to be with you. Thank you again for having me. And I just wanted to take a quick moment uh, just to say uh, on behalf of uh, the elders at Westfield Church in Victoria, I just wanted to send greetings to you. One of the things we do uh, in uh, North America with our Soma churches is we often send uh, elders from church to church uh, to bring greetings on behalf of our church to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So from across uh, across the other side of the world, uh, our, our, our church elders uh, are thankful for you. Uh, they are actually praying for you uh, right now as we gather together today. Uh, I've been sending them updates about uh, what God is doing in Australia. And I also just wanted to take a moment uh, just to say thank you. Thank you for your work. Um, you probably don't realize it, because oftentimes we don't, uh, but the work that is happening here through Soma Blue Mountains is very encouraging, uh, not just to the churches in Australia, but to other churches uh, around the world. There are many who have uh, learned uh, from your church, who have been blessed by the work that is going on here, uh, myself being one. Uh, this is my second time here. I was here in 2015 uh, to do a similar trip and to visit uh, churches and church leaders. And I can just say, I've been just deeply encouraged. I pay attention closely to the work uh, that Jesus is doing uh, here in your church. And so I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, thank you on behalf of our church and other Soma churches uh, for your faithfulness to Jesus, your faithfulness to the gospel and the work that Jesus uh, is doing here in your community. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on because many are being blessed and encouraged. Uh, so as we've already heard, we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to that. If you have a Bible on your phone in Canada, uh, it is very common uh, for uh, people to read the Bible on their phone in church gatherings. Gone are the days when you would hear the rustling of pages in a Sunday gathering. But one thing I will say I've noticed, and I don't know if this is a Blue Mountains thing or if this is an Aussie thing, uh, but you guys take notes. I see a lot of people with journals and pens out. Uh, not to shame those who don't have journals and pens out. Um, but I don't know that I've ever seen uh, a Canadian do that. And maybe that's just because the things I say aren't that interesting and worthy of being written down. But... Uh, I'll just say it's encouraging. I say something and then I see someone write it down. I'm like, oh, wow. In Canada, we just tweet it. We just tweet it. We don't actually write it down. Um, but what I want to do uh, today is I, I want to talk a little bit out of Acts chapter 19. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach. Uh, that is what I'm going to do. But it's not going to be exactly a sermon. It's going to be a mix of a sermon and an exhortation uh, to us as the people of God. Because what we see in Acts chapter 19 is a unique time. Uh, really, the whole book of Acts, obviously, is a unique time in the history of the church. It's the establishment of Jesus' church. And this happens at uh, West Village as well. We have a lot of children, and it is a blessing. But what we see in the book of Acts is the establishment of God's church. It's a unique time in salvation history where God is doing a great work. And what is fascinating about what we see in the book of Acts is we see this reality that we're, when it seems impossible for Jesus' mission to go forward, it continues to persistently move ahead. It seems that this is the most unlikely story, if you and I were to sit down and write a story, the most unlikely story that we would write. But yet this is the story that God is writing, and this is the story by which God is expressing his church going forward. And I know for me, it can often feel like, is what I'm doing worth it? Is what we as a church are doing, is it worth it? I mean, obviously, theologically, I understand it's worth it for the glory of God. I understand we want to worship 
uh, Jesus with our whole minds and bodies and lives. I understand that from a theological sense, but when I look at around at the fruit, I often wonder, I've been working hard. I've given a lot of my time, and no, I'm not speaking here as a vocational uh, paid church worker, but I just mean as a, a local disciple maker in my community. I've been working hard, I've been giving a lot. I've been trying lots of different things. I've had tons of gospel, lots of gospel conversations. Is it working? Our GC often asks, is this worth it? Is the, is the mission going forward? Uh, you know, we already described a little bit of the, the Canadian context, but when you look at the Canadian context, where it seems like the church is losing ground, it doesn't seem like it, it is. The church is losing ground. It seems like Jesus' mission is not going forward. It actually, if you were just to look on paper or look at the scoreboard, if you will, Jesus is actually losing, it would appear. Is it worth it? Is it, is it working? <coughs> And maybe it's not your GC, maybe it's not the church, maybe it's just even in your own life. There's very little progress, it feels at times. Is, is Jesus' mission actually going forward? Well, Acts chapter 19 paints a picture for us of the ongoing flourishing of Jesus' mission. But it happens in ways that perhaps are... Uh, not ways that we would imagine it would happen. So turn your eyes to Acts chapter 19, and we'll just kind of work our way through this passage and unpack some things as we go. So Acts chapter 19, Luke, who wrote this, writes this in the first half of verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, and he arrived at Ephesus. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 18, you would see that this is Actually, Paul's second time in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey, but this is his second time in the city of Ephesus. Previous, he stopped there for a few weeks, did some gospel work. Then he was traveling from place to place, other places as the Spirit led him to preach the gospel, see more churches established. And here he comes back to the city of Ephesus. And, and what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to uh, start to see a church established. And, and what's interesting is we, we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. There are a lot of differences, obviously, between the Apostle Paul and us, but there are also some similarities. The, the Apostle Paul lived as a missionary. He, he, he wasn't necessarily a, a paid leader in the church. He had a job. He worked a job. He was a tent maker. Uh, but he would come into these cities, and he would look for places where the gospel could go forward. He would live as a missionary. He would plant the gospel, and he would see people come to faith in Jesus. So Paul comes into the city of Ephesus, and, and here's what we see, second half of verse 1. There he found some disciples, verse 2. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Verse 4, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's interesting, Paul comes into the city of Ephesus. He's coming in, he's coming again, he's preaching the gospel, he's looking to see what the Spirit of God is doing. And what does he find? Right out of the gate, he finds what Luke 
calls for us some disciples. But as we see in the story, these are not disciples of Jesus, but rather these are disciples of John the Baptist. Or, or perhaps they might not have been direct disciples of John the Baptist. Perhaps they were disciples of, disciples of John the Baptist. These were men who had been discipled by somebody who had been influenced by John the Baptist. Or John the Baptist, rather. And they were baptized, but they were not baptized in the name of Jesus. They were baptized in the name of John. As is alluded to here in Acts 19, but you probably recall, previous to Jesus' public ministry beginning, John the Baptist came on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus. And he literally says, my baptism is a baptism of repentance, but one will come after me who will baptize in the Spirit. So these disciples that uh, Paul had found were not disciples of Jesus, but rather disciples of John the Baptist, and they had not yet fully grasped the fullness of of who Jesus actually is. But what we see here, and this is something that we see consistently in the ministry of Paul as he goes into different contexts and different communities, he comes to find people that we at West Village would call low-hanging fruit. Right? Low-hanging fruit. They're disproportionately open to the gospel. There's other instances in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul will go into synagogues and teach there because there, there's an openness to, uh, you know, the, 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 to the preaching of the gospel. There's an openness to the teachings that Paul had. And here he comes to these disciples of John the Baptist, and they are incredibly open to what Paul has to say. They've already de 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 demonstrated, rather, that they have an openness to spiritual things. There's a familiarity with John, which meant there was an openness to Jesus. And what's interesting, it's really amazing, rather, is that Jesus' mission always finds a way to go forward. The Apostle Paul comes into the city of Ephesus. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what he's going to encounter. But he goes in there with the eyes of a missionary. He goes in there with a heart that is willing to be led by the Spirit of God. And what does he find? He finds that there are people who are already prepared to hear the gospel. The Spirit of God has been at work in the city of Ephesus before the Apostle Paul got there. <coughs> This is incredible. This should be deeply encouraging to us. What we see from Genesis to Revelation is that God is a missionary God. Right from the very beginning of the creation account, we see that God's heart is a heart of mission. He is pursuing people. He is coming after them. And what's fascinating to me, what is, what is so encouraging to me, is that we join God on his mission... It's not that we ask him to join us on ours. And, and I think we all understand that theologically, but, but experientially it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Experientially it often feels like in our gospel communities or what we would call in our context a missional community, we sit around and we, we try and figure out how we're going to live on mission and we try and figure out who the Spirit of God has called us to, to reach and we make plans, and it feels like we're asking Jesus to join us on our mission, when in fact, what is happening is we are going into places, into spaces, connecting with people where the Spirit of God has already been at work. 
in all of our contexts, there may be, there likely is people who the Spirit has already been pursuing and preparing to hear the gospel. Again, in our context, again, probably not very different than yours, it is tough soil. It's hard to grow a garden on rocks. But sometimes that's what it feels like in my city, and I'm sure that's what it feels like in your city. And so one of the things that we have begun to train our people in is, is just to start to ask the question, God, where are you already at work? What are you already doing? We, we have just been training our people, and, and maybe this will be a, a little bit of encouragement to you. We've been praying, uh, training our people rather into praying these two prayers, what we call listening prayer and kingdom prayer. Listening prayer is simply asking the question of the Spirit of God, where are you already at work? And we literally pray that prayer, and we literally listen to the Holy Spirit. And then we follow up with this prayer. How can I join you? Where are you at work, and how can I join you? And what this has done for our people is it has brought a great measure of freedom. Because we no longer feel like, and, and, and I think perhaps this has been a failure of our leadership in our country. <coughs> it often has felt like the work is ours to do and Jesus is to bless. But what this has done is it has opened up our hearts and our minds to the reality that Jesus is already at work. It's his mission. And we are joining him in that mission. So it's brought a great degree of freedom for our people. First, because we've begun to recognize that there's already people in our context who the Holy Spirit is pursuing. We, we don't have to be the ones to save anyone. We don't have to be the ones to come up with a great strategy or for sure we plan, for sure we strategize, but, but the, the salvation of our friends and neighbors and the mission going forward is not contingent or dependent on us coming up with a great plan, and we're never starting from ground zero, because even if there's no gospel presence, the Spirit of God is already at work in that place. And the second reason that this has been so freeing for our people is because, as I've already said, the soil in Victoria is very hard. It's very hard to see people come to faith in Jesus. It's very rare to see converts to Christ. But to be reminded that it is not up to us has been so freeing. Just a quick story to illustrate this. So our RMC or our GC, we started praying these prayers. So our rhythm is on Thursdays when our MC meets or our GC meets, we will take the day to fast and pray. And throughout the day, we, we pray these prayers. We pray um, listening prayer, God, where are you at work? And we pray kingdom prayer, uh, how can I join? And, and at the beginning of this process, like, I literally was just asking that question all the time. And a number of months ago now, I was at the gym where I, where I go to work out. And, um, I started praying this prayer, God, where are you at work? Where are you at work? And I got introduced sort of accidentally. Somebody had just reached out and connected with me at the gym to this, this smaller group of younger guys. And um, through this encounter, I discovered there was one of the guys, there was about four guys there, and one of the guys that, uh, that I met, his name was Quentin. And Quentin was um, an, a new Canadian from France. And I got to know Quentin for maybe two or three weeks. And I just kept asking that question, God, where are you at work? How can I join? 
after uh, Quinn and I had been working out together, just kind of you know spotting each other at the gym and doing things that guys do at the gym, Quinn shared with me that, um, and, and there was about three other guys with us, he shared with all of us actually that he was going over from Canada to the Ukraine to, to help with the war. And I had this moment where um, I, I just sensed that the Spirit of God wanted me to pray for, for Quentin. He actually shared, like, today was going to be his last day at the gym, and we weren't going to see him anymore. He was off to, to the Ukraine uh, to fight in the war. And I don't know if you have these moments where you know you're supposed to do something, but you really don't want to look stupid in front of a whole bunch of people. So you can just imagine the scene. I'm at the gym. There's Quentin. There's uh, another guy named Randy, another guy named Jared. And these are guys that are a lot younger than me. They're in their 20s and 30s. Uh, the big, masculine, muscular dudes. Lots of tattoos, facial hair, things like that. And I can hear this, like, nagging voice in my heart that I am supposed to pray for Quentin. And I don't know, again, maybe this is just a me thing. Maybe this isn't a you thing. But I start negotiating with God. Right? So what does it mean that you want me to pray for him? Does that mean you want me to tell him that I'm going to pray for him? No. Does that mean I'm supposed to get his phone number and, uh, and text him after we've met and said, hey, I'm going to be praying for you? And, and it was clear. like There was this pit in my stomach that I was meant to lay hands on this man in the gym and pray for him. And we sort of parted ways, and I couldn't shake it. And it was time, my time at the gym had ended. I needed to go get my kids off to school and, and get to work. And I just knew I had to obey. God, what are you doing? How can I join? Here's what you said. I need to go do it. So in the most fearful way possible, I marched towards the front of the gym. There's Quentin. There's Randy. They're lifting weights. I walk up to Quentin. I said, hey. Quentin, uh, I gotta go. I just wanted to you know, say goodbye before I left. I said, this might sound really strange to you. Uh, I said, um, I'm not sure if you believe in God or not, but I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just have the strong sense that I should pray for you before, before you go. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, uh, would it be okay if I prayed for you right now? He said, and he stands up. And I put my hand on his shoulder. And I'm about to pray for him. And Randy stands up. And Randy says, what are you guys doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm about to pray for Quinn. And I won't repeat exactly what he said because there was some swear words in it. But basically, he was really excited about this opportunity and asked if he could get in on it. <laughs> and I said, yes, of course. And so Randy put his hand on Quinn's shoulder. I put my hand on Quinn's shoulder. Randy put his hand on my shoulder. I put my hand on his shoulder. You just imagine these three you know, dudes at the front of the gym. There's people everywhere. There's music playing. Everyone's doing their thing. And I just pray Jesus' blessing over Quentin, and I pray the gospel over him. Now, Quentin and I have maintained relationship. We've talked lots. He's been back on furlough a few times. It's been wonderful. But what happened next was even better. The next day, I show up to the gym to work out again, and Randy says to me, hey, Chris, come here for a minute. Yeah? Can we start working out together? I said, yeah, I'd love to work out with you, Randy. So we start working out together. And I realized quite quickly, this isn't about working out. He, he actually wants to know more. He wants to talk about Jesus. And so we're having these gospel conversations, and I look at his arm, and he has this massive tattoo of a cross on his arm. And just for context, uh, Randy, Randy's a steroid user. He is like this massive behemoth of a human being. Like, he is testosterone personified. And 
I asked him, I said, Randy, can you tell me about that tattoo? Like, are you religious in any way? Have you ever been to church? He goes, no, I've never been to church. I'm like, well, why did you get a cross tattoo? He tells me this long story that I will not share all the details of, but it has to do with addiction in his younger years, and it has to do with this moment where he decided he was going to get sober. He describes it like this. I was in my room, and I had a visitation from God. It was I don't know how I knew it was God, but it was a white, blinding light. And he said, I knew in that moment I needed, I needed to get sober. And I got this tattoo to commemorate that moment. And I said to him, I said, Randy, um, I don't know what you believe and what you don't believe, but, but I think Jesus has sent me to you to explain to you what that vision was. And I was able to explain to him the gospel of Jesus. And I can't make this stuff up. He begins weeping in the gym. And I just told him about forgiveness of sins and Jesus' love for him. And I end up laying hands on him and praying for him again. And, and it's been quite a journey with Randy. He had, to my knowledge, has not been baptized yet. But he started poking his head into a church in his local community. Comes kind of late and he's really over tight. Um, him and I work out together faithfully three or four times a week, having gospel conversations. But if you had asked me at the beginning of all this, Chris, do you think that there's people here at the gym that want to hear about Jesus? You know what my answer would have been? No. No. But as I began to pray, as I began to listen to the Spirit of God and listen to see where God was at work, what I began to see is there's people all over the place that are actually being pursued by Jesus right now. So Paul comes into Ephesus and he's not sure where he's going to go, but he finds these people that have already been being pursued by Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 6, so Paul tells them about Jesus. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 5. And then verse 6, this gets a little bit interesting here. Verse 6, it says, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. So there's lots of things that could be described or talked about here. But let me just, let me just unpack a couple of the issues that come out of verse 6. The first one, there, there's a little bit of confusion around baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It would be easy to read this text and come to the conclusion that we get filled with the Holy Spirit upon baptism. But that's not really what's being described for us. Luke is just putting out for us in very clear, plain sight what it looks like when someone comes to faith in Jesus. There's always these components that we see in Luke's description of someone coming to faith in Jesus. They don't always happen in the same order. Uh, but what we see is we see repentance, we see faith in Jesus, we see water baptism take place, and then we see people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this happens through the laying on of hands, but not often. But what we see, though, and this is a little bit more interesting, is in the second half of verse 6, we see that after they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Now let me just answer a couple of questions as it pertains to this. So, so first, what is being described here as these disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I understand you guys are going through 1 Corinthians or uh, 1 Corinthians, as they say in Australia, and, and I know David's going to unpack all of this, but, but Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, describes the gift of tongues like this. Tongues refers to a 
the gift of speech, which through making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. Such speech is experienced as a stream of praise in which, though the speaker may not be able to articulate what precisely is being said, a sense of love for God and adoration and gratitude wells up and overflows. It's like a private language of love. So what seems to be happening here is that there is a believer, in this case 12 believers, who come to faith in Jesus and have this overwhelming sense of the love of God and it manifests itself in a supernatural expression of praise. It's similar to, although different, than when we feel a sense of God's presence and we raise our hands in worship. Although this is more of a supernatural expression of that. But ultimately, what we are seeing is the overflow of the presence of God in a person's life. So the obvious question that flows from that, then, is this everyone's experience? In other words, is this a normative experience? And and my answer to that would be no and yes. No, it's not normative in that it's important to understand the unique place that this story occurs in salvation history, specifically here in the city of Ephesus. In the book of Acts, the filling of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in this way was a sign. It was a sign that God was doing a unique work. What was that unique work? Well, the first is genuine conversion. You have to remember at this time in in the, the order of things, in salvation history, there was no established formal church there. It was being established. And so there was no church leaders, there was no church governance, there was no way to validate when a person had a genuine expression of faith. And so so one of the things that this overflow of God's spirit was given to the first century church to describe was a person's genuine conversion to Christ. But also this experience, while not normative in the book of Acts, does happen several times. And what's interesting, and this, this is significant, What's interesting is that it happens both to Jew and to Gentile. This gift of tongues and prophecy. And it seems to be that the Spirit is revealing to the early church that within God's family there is no second class citizens. That the Spirit of God fills all, regardless of background, regardless of tribe, regardless of ethnicity. So in one sense, this manifestation is not normal. This is unique. But there's also a sense in which the Spirit of God pours itself out amongst God's people, and it is normative. Again, you're going to talk about this in in 1 Corinthians, but the gift of tongues is something that God gives. The Apostle Paul listed as a spiritual gift and even suggests or seems to imply that it should be desired. Does that mean that everyone's going to experience it? No. And that gift should be manifested in such a way that is in accordance with the, the way that the scriptures teach it should be used and not abused. But here's the, the bigger point that I think is helpful for us out of verse 6. What should be normal, what we should see as normative, is when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, that they are now 
filled with God's Spirit. You are no longer a merely natural being. But you are a supernatural being. These men repented, they believed, and they were baptized. All of this is the fruit of the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. What this means is that these men were no longer natural, but they were rather supernatural. What is universal for us is that all who are in Christ have the Spirit of the living God in them. What is universal for us is that the Spirit of God produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul lays out in Ephesians 5, which is a testimony to the work of Jesus in our lives. What is universal is that the Apostle Paul tells us to be led by the Spirit and to not quench the work of the Spirit. What is universal is that God moves among us and we experience His manifest presence. That when we gather together like this, when we gather together in smaller communities under the Lordship of Christ, the Spirit of God is doing something that we cannot fully grasp or understand. And what is universal is that the Spirit of God reveals to us the person and the work of Jesus, and it is the Spirit of God who sends the mission, the mission of Jesus to go forward. The Spirit of God fills the church, the Spirit of God leads the church, and the Spirit of God sends the church on mission. Remember what Jesus himself said. The Spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. But we have said this many times, and this is something we remind our people of in our context often. The mission field is hard. It's hard. It's hard to go out and plant the gospel and see people come to faith. It often feels like nothing is happening. We have to recognize that apart from a work of the Spirit, the Spirit empowering us, the Spirit leading us, the Spirit at work in our communities, in our cities, that our efforts are futile and Think about your friends and your neighbors for just a moment. Think about the people that God has placed around you, has placed on your heart, think about the names and their faces. And ask yourself the question, what would it take for them to believe? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, a letter written to this church, that apart from Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sin. What does it take to resurrect someone from the dead? We can come up with the greatest strategies, the best missional philosophy, superb gospel fluency, Heart from the Spirit of God, illuminating the hearts and minds of those around us. Our efforts will be futile. We need God's Spirit. We are to be a Spirit filled and led people. And so, if I could just encourage you with anything, it would be to start as as individuals, as gospel communities, as a church to 
to spend time praying, to spend time pressing into the presence of God, where is God at work among you? One of the things that we have been just training in the last season and has been super encouraging and very fruitful is just regular rhythms of fasting and praying in our community and prayer walking. This morning, it's Saturday, where I'm from this morning at 10 o'clock. This morning, our, our missional community met at Spectrum Community School, which is the school where our missional community is invested and involved. And they prayer walked the school and they spent time just asking the Spirit of God to bless the school and to lead our MC as we seek to live as missionaries in that community. And it's so freeing to know that the mission that we are on, it's not ours. It's Jesus' mission. Then the Apostle Paul goes on, and I'll wind down with this. He says this, or sorry, you rather says this in verse 7. There are about 12 men in all. That's the number of disciples. And then in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. So again, Paul sees these 12 men come to faith. This becomes a little bit of the core group or his gospel community that's going to help him on mission. He also has Priscilla and Aquila with him. And what we see is there comes this resistance. He goes into the synagogue. He preaches. He's teaching about Jesus' kingdom for three months. Luke even describes Paul's teaching as persuasive. But eventually, he hits a roadblock. People refuse to believe, and they start maligning the church and Jesus' people. And so Paul has to figure something else out. There's opposition to the mission. And again, this is, this is something that happens as we seek to live as missionaries to the city. We, we tend to find opposition. We'll have fruitful, seasons of fruitfulness, but then seasons of, seasons of opposition. Uh, this, this is often the case in our context. Again, we, we just have a lot of opposition to Jesus' mission. There, there, are, there is actively... Uh, no spaces where churches are permitted to meet currently in the, the part of the city that we live in. The, the school districts have said we do not want to have churches in our buildings on Sundays. There, I, we were trying to find a facility for a, a local church plan, and we were told specifically that we will not rent to churches. There's this ongoing opposition. We, we find it difficult to be followers of Jesus in the community because there's resistance to the teachings of Jesus and to the way of Jesus' people. And it can be so discouraging. But notice what happens. It says this, Luke writes, he took, even Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. And this went on for two years so that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What do we see? We see this beautiful picture of Jesus' mission continuing to go forward. We're told that the Apostle Paul takes the disciples to this lecture hall of Tyrannius. We don't know who Tyrannius is. Most people would say that he's not a follower of Jesus. They, they imagine that he's some sort of philosopher or teacher. But he lets Paul use the hall. And for two years, Paul and this small group of people end up having gospel conversations. They use this as a place for evangelism. And what we're seeing is that Ephesus, this hard place where it seems like the gospel is not going forward, where people are rejecting the gospel, 
we're, and we're gonna, you see in the second half of Acts 19, there's this fierce opposition to the way of Jesus. Jesus continues to make a way for his church to go forward. By the power of the Spirit, Paul was led to the disciples of John. By the power of the Spirit, Paul was given the hall of Tyrannius. By the power of the Spirit, for two years, that's a long time, two years he was able to preach the gospel and see all the people of the region encounter and hear the word of the Lord. If you think about it, it's amazing. Who, who does Jesus use? Well, he uses Paul, obviously. He uses these disciples, but he also uses Tyrannius. We don't know why Tyrannius was willing to make his space available. Maybe it's because Paul paid him. Maybe he's doing it for the money. Maybe he was just a nice guy. We don't know. Maybe he really liked to hear what the Apostle Paul had to say. But the point is this. Jesus' mission always finds a way. If you go back to Acts chapter 18 and you ask yourself, how did Priscilla and Aquila end up in Ephesus? Well, they ended up in Ephesus because they were told that they had to leave and flee their homeland. And they bump into the Apostle Paul. And they go into Ephesus. And they bump into these men who had heard of John's baptism, but not Jesus's. If you go back to Acts chapter 18, you see the, uh, Apollos. Apollos is teacher of the word of God. He's heard of John's baptism, but he himself has not heard of Jesus' baptism. And we see all of these unique ways in which Jesus is at work amongst the people in ways that could not have been predicted or planned. And what is the result? What is the result? This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Small group of people, lots of opposition, lots of uncertainty. Jesus' mission always finds a way. And we get this picture of gospel saturation. The way we describe this at, at our church is that our, our desire is that every man, woman, and child would have an encounter with Jesus and his church through word and deed. That everywhere people would bump into Christians. It's not that we would have full buildings, but we would have full cities of people living out Jesus' mission. I don't know the area particularly well, but just imagine the Blue Mountains. All these communities up and down the mountains. Full full of Christians so that every every single person has heard the word of the Lord they don't have to come here they don't have to find their way here to hear the word of the Lord but through our lives and the lives of others they hear about Jesus the name of Jesus is on the lips of our friends and neighbors and our prayer is, make it so, Jesus. Make it so. Friends, he is and he will. Jesus is always faithful to complete the work that he has begun. Jesus was faithful to the Father all the way unto death. And what seemed like the greatest obstacle to the mission, the cross, and the death of Jesus was the very thing that Jesus uses to forgive our sins, and to fulfill his mission.
Jesus was faithful to be raised from the grave and overcome death. Jesus was faithful to ascend into heaven and to send his church, his spirit. And he was faithful to continue to fulfill his mission through his church. And he will continue to be at work until there is a great multitude from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, both Australian and Canadian. And we pray for us. Jesus, we know that you are at work among us. We know that it is your presence, it is your mission, it is your church. And so we submit ourselves to you. And we ask that you would fill us and lead us and guide us. We ask that you would open up doors, prepare soil, that you would continue to find a way, just like you have been doing for centuries, continue to find a way. Make our hearts soft to you. And may many in our community come to know you, we pray, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.